on today's episode of the Fit to Lead podcast, you get to meet Dr. Chris Swart, who is a college professor in the area of exercise science at the American International College. Chris loves to fitness myth bust and nutrition myth bust, which is what we cover during today's episode. So I hope you learn some great nuggets of wisdom from Dr. Chris Swart in this episode. So I am super excited to have Dr. Chris Spart with me today. Dr. Chris, I'd like, I'm just going to call you that. How Hello. are we doing this morning? I'm doing great. I'm full of energy as always. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to share, you know, my experience and thoughts. So um, this is going to be a great episode. I know it for sure. Absolutely. And I love the fact that you're a college professor. So we're going to dig in and unpack some common myths about fitness and nutrition. But first, I would love for you to tell folks kind of you know, your journey and how you got to where you are today. How did you become a college professor? Yes, I love that question. So like many people that get into this field, I was an athlete growing up. I loved playing sports. Um, but I didn't have the same athletic ability that others had. Like I knew that I was never going to be a professional athlete. Um, but I also had a very strong work ethic and I found lifting weights. I found exercise. I found nutrition at an early age. And my mother was in the ice capades and my dad was a big runner in Massachusetts. So I'm from Massachusetts. And he and my mother basically instilled that like athletic work ethic, from such a young age, like I said, I did everything. Uh, but when I decided to go to college, I was like, man, how can I take my love for athletics, my passion for, you know, improving my own athleticism and, you know, focusing on how to eat healthy, how to structure workouts, and how can I make a career out of this, right? So my first kind of um, diving off point for health and, and fitness was athletic training. I thought that, okay, because I experienced, when I was a high school athlete, I experienced some injuries and I'm like, okay, how can I help others not have the same problems with injuries and things like that? Because when I was in high school, I felt like our strength and conditioning program just wasn't very good. Like, you know, there wasn't qualified professionals at that time. So I'm 35 now. So at that time in high school, we're talking like 2000s, 2004, there wasn't very many, you know, pro qualified professionals in there. So I go to college and I played football in college and you couldn't be an athletic training major and play football at the same time at the college that I went to. So I was like, oh my God, what's the next best thing? And I fell in love with exercise science. So basically to make a long story short, instead of the preventative side, excuse me, instead of the rehab side, I fell in love with the preventative side. I wanted to get people stronger. I wanted to get them more athletic and all those types of things to benefit their, their um, playing career. So I did my undergrad at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts. I did my master's at Bridgewater as well in strength and conditioning. So from there, I spent about three years working as a division one strength and conditioning coach. So mainly I worked with football, but I dabbled in other sports. So I worked with cross country a little bit. I worked with baseball, um, went to several universities. I really loved what I did, but I felt that I had a really good ability to take complex topics, make them really simple and get the athletes to understand what, why they were doing what they were doing and really buy into it. 
So I said, man, I should go get a PhD. And that's what happened. I decided to go get a PhD one day, um, woke up, went to Springfield College in Massachusetts. So because I was from Massachusetts, I was very familiar with that program. And I've been a college professor ever since. So this is my seventh year as a college professor. I teach mainly exercise science related courses. I teach at the undergraduate level. I teach at the graduate level, um, mainly courses related to sport nutrition, physiology, medical physiology. So clinical things like what is high blood pressure? What, are, what is diabetes? Um, how do you deal with those things from an exercise and nutrition perspective? Uh, and then last but not least, I teach a lot of like professional development courses. So things related to networking. I'm a big networker. Um, I think that's important. If you're going to grow, you have to, you have to do those things. So I teach a course that kind of develops a roadmap for students as they first get into the field. So I know that was a long winded answer, but you know, I just want people to have a good grasp of like, who is this guy and, and what is his background coming into this for sure? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love it. It's so much good thing. Like I love all the things, you know, the training, the exercise science, the nutrition. It's just, I love it. I love so much. Um, you're going to be a wealth of knowledge. I just know it. <laughs> I appreciate so, that. Yeah. So throughout this whole journey and, and going through the different programs and stuff, what do you consider your superpower and why? So it's funny because I kind of just opened up that door beforehand, but I think my biggest superpower as an educator is by far being able to take all the science, all the complexity that's out there um, when you read a research article and how do you make it so it's digestible for the general public and or digestible for my students that are just coming into a undergraduate program and how can they make the most out of the information that's out there and use it in an applied setting because I think there's a lot of people I'm not unique I think there's a lot of people like me out there that have a lot of knowledge but yet how do you take that knowledge and put it into the like actual practical actionable steps is a skill and I think that's a skill that a lot of people um, try to develop over time and, and really struggle with. Uh, and that's something that I think I personally do very well is, is take these topics and make it so somebody, no matter what level of education you have, you're going to get something out of what I have to say. Um, and I think that that's why I've kind of really gotten into more podcasts and kind of long form content because I enjoy doing the small little quick tips and things like that on social media. But I also think that there's a large value in, hey, let's hear the nuances because that matters, right? The details matter if you're really going to get into health and fitness and you need to make the best decision for yourself. And part of that is simplifying complex topics. I love that. And I think that is super important, especially, you know, having the science background. I, uh, growing up, could not stand science and math and stuff, but I loved exercise and there is so much science. So that is a great superpower to be able to simplify it. Uh, Cause I know that's something I struggle with. Even when people ask me questions around like intermittent fasting or keto, and it's like, I don't understand it scientifically. I just get like what it does, you know? So to that point, I would love to kind of hear your perspective on some of like the hot topics out mm -hmm. there. So for instance, intermittent fasting, what is your take on it? So I am a 
So I'm not either side, like I'm not against it or I'm not really for intermittent fasting. Uh, I always take a case by case approach. And that sounds like a default answer for a lot of people, but it is the answer, right? Like, you, you know, keto, excuse me, not keto, intermittent fasting can be very beneficial for one person and it can really cause a lot of problems for another person. Basically, when we look at something like intermittent fasting, you know, we know now that total calories that you consume in the course of the day is by far king. That's the most important factor. So if you're the type of person where you have like a really busy schedule and you decide that you're going to kind of restrict your feeding window because it works best for you in your schedule, then that's perfectly fine. But you have to make sure that you're still hitting your total calorie target, whatever that is for you, right? The problem with intermittent fasting sometimes becomes if I restrict my feeding window too small, I might not eat the right amount of calories. I might undereat. And for some people, it goes the opposite. If they restrict their feeding window, they binge because they're so hungry and they overeat. So intermittent fasting is one of those things. It's a great tool. It can absolutely be used. Um, there's benefits to having periods of time without eating, but at the end of the day, it depends on your goal, because if you're looking to build muscle, intermittent fasting, in my opinion, is not your friend, because you need to have certain amounts of protein consistently throughout the course of the day, um, so that could be problematic if you're looking to build muscle, but like I said, if it works for you, if you have a busy schedule or you just don't like eating breakfast, like there's a lot of people out there that, and I'm kind of one of them. I have to almost force myself to eat breakfast. I'm not hungry in the morning, but I still right. do it. But I'd be the type of person where intermittent fasting from the standpoint of skipping breakfast and starting my feeding window, maybe at noon and stopping at 8 PM, which is one of the most common ways that people do it. That could be beneficial for me because you know, I'm not necessarily as hungry at that time period. And I don't think it leads to, because I've cut out my breakfast, I don't think for me personally, it leads to binging at night, but for some people it can. So right. those are some things. It's a tool that can be used, yeah. but it shouldn't be sold as a magic fat loss hack, so to speak. Yes. And I think that's how yes. people spell it. Like, oh, yes. if you intermittent fast, you're going to burn more fat. You're going to lose more fat. And it's not the case. Total yes. calories, no matter how you distribute them throughout the course of the day, that's king, period. Yeah, I'm on the same page with you. I always tell people there's no magical unicorn. It's calories in versus calories out. And, you know, yeah. you have the keto, the intermittent fasting, whatever's trending, you know, the diet of the month. Um, but I love it. So you talked a little bit about building muscle. So you may or may not know. So I'm a professional figure competitor. So I'm always pushing like protein and building muscle. We lose muscles, we age, yada, yada. Um, and that nutrition is really king when it comes to transforming your body and really taking it to the next level. So I would love to hear your thoughts around that, like how the new role that nutrition plays in building muscle and as we age, the importance of it. So I always tell people that if you're looking to lose body fat, so for a quick second, I'm going to go on the opposite side. Yep. If you're looking to lose body fat, nutrition is king strength training is queen. If you're looking to build muscle, strength training is king, 
nutrition is queen, right? So it's kind of flip-flopped, but that doesn't discount the massive importance of nutrition in trying to build muscle. So if you're looking to build muscle, you've got to give the muscle a stimulus. You have to give it a reason to grow. And that all comes down to your weightlifting, your resistance training, and how you do that. So that's kind of a separate conversation. But to put it in that nutritional component, if you're looking to gain muscle mass, one of the things that I tell people is a few things. Number one, you have to probably be somewhere around one gram of protein per pound of body weight, if not, maybe even more for certain people. And it depends on age. So like protein intake changes throughout the lifespan. And I don't think that that's something that people talk about enough, uh, but maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit. So the amount of protein is, is number one. Then the second conversational piece is distribution throughout the course of the day. So if you are looking to build muscle mass, um, you have to make sure, in my opinion, that you get somewhere between 20 to 30 grams of protein per meal and probably three, four, five, or six of those a day, right? So like we need those amino acids, which is the building blocks of protein. We need those constantly kind of flowing through our bloodstream so we can stimulate. There's a certain pathway in our muscles called mTOR, which we don't have to get scientific about it, but it's a pathway that gets stimulated when we eat enough protein, specifically an amino acid known as leucine, which, which is really, really important. So those are keys to building you know, muscle mass. So you have to make sure that you're doing those things throughout the course of the day. So you got to hit a protein target. You got to distribute it throughout the course of the day. You have to focus on protein quality because there is a difference between animal-based proteins, the, you know, something that you'd find in chicken or, or beef, for example, and then protein that you're going to see in plant-based sources. So not to say that if you're trying to build muscle and you're a vegan or a vegetarian, that it can't happen. You probably just need a little bit more. And I always make sure that people know that um, the bioavailability of protein from a plant-based source is a little bit less. When I say bioavailability, this is a fancy term of saying protein getting into the bloodstream, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit less if, if that's the case. And then the last piece that I talk to people about is protein timing. So then you start to focus on, all right, if I'm looking to build muscle, it absolutely behooves you to center protein around your workout. Like there, that's an obvious statement and that's something that's really important. So then you start to focus on that, that kind of workout window protein intake. And if you do all those things right, and you have enough volume in your workout. And when I mean, when I say volume, I mean, sets and reps, you know, you've got total work you've got enough to provide the muscle growth stimulus and you're doing hard sets close to failure, you're, you're in a golden spot to gain muscle mass for sure. Mm, I love that. I love that. All good stuff. And um, I love hearing about the timing and how much throughout the day. And uh, I love all those things. Now you touched upon um, earlier keto. So I would love, and as just as a side note, I, I'm totally anti-keto, but would love to hear your take on keto and kind of what you see and from you know a scientific perspective, would love your perspective. Yeah, I think that the ketogenic diet, and for people who are listening that may not know, and I'm sure most people obviously do, keto is just a fancy way of saying a higher fat diet. It's a high fat diet. It's generally moderate protein and obviously really, really low carbohydrate. It's kind of a spinoff of if people out there remember the Atkins diet, it's basically a spinoff <laughs> <did Atkins>. of <laughs> the Atkins diet. I mean, that's essentially what it is. Now, I don't like the keto diet. I, I'm just not a fan of it. 
But with that being said, there are cases or certain circumstances where the keto diet can play a role. And so the keto diet really became popular, I believe it was early 1900s, but it might have even been earlier than that. And it's epilepsy, right? Like that's where the medical um, kind of use of the keto diet is to treat epileptic conditions when other medications aren't working. So that's kind of where it kind of stemmed from. The problem with the keto diet is if you're going to resistance train or exercise and do anything relatively high intensity, carbohydrates are your fuel source for that. So if you don't eat enough carbohydrates and you're going to resistance train or do something like sprint work or anything high intensity, you're not going to have the available energy to be successful in that particular exercise task. So you're making the whole situation way worse by doing that. Now, if you go on a keto diet and you have very low carbohydrate intake, one of the things that I don't think enough people talk about is every time I eat one gram of carbohydrate. So it, no matter what food you eat, when you eat a gram of carbohydrate, you store about three grams of water. So when people have a higher carbohydrate diet, they tend to gain some body weight, but it's not fat. So like, that's the problem with the scale. They <laughs> yes. step on the scale and they freak out because they're eating carbohydrates and it's storing water. It's not storing fat. It's just water. Now on the flip side of that, the reason why I said that is because when you diet and you cut out carbohydrates, you step on the scale a week later and your body weight went down super quick. And you're like, oh my God, this is great. The ketogenic diet is perfect for me. Look at how much weight I've lost. The problem is most people don't realize it's just water. You're simply mm -hmm. losing water. You're not losing fat. You know, you're not changing your body composition per se. You're just not holding on to the same amount of water. And what, what most people don't realize as well is your body is 60 to 70% water. So that's the majority of you. So when you lose a little bit of it, you know, yeah, you can see that tank, excuse me, that scale tank pretty quickly, but it doesn't typically lead to long-term success. So it's right. quick weight loss. People get excited about it. And then all of a sudden they're not seeing the same results because they don't realize that it was water, not fat. And it creates massive amounts of problems from there. And then when we are on a low carb diet, like I said before, um, you're not, you don't have the right amount of energy, you start to get fatigued, your workouts and performance suffer, and then it just creates a situation where you're tired all the time and it just doesn't work. Now, for some people it does, and you know I don't wanna spend too much time on the keto diet, yeah. but for some people it does, metabolic conditions, there are some metabolic conditions, um, you know, diabetes and insulin resistance that obviously can benefit from a lower carbohydrate diet, but it's just going too low is a problem. And just seeing that immediate weight loss shouldn't motivate you to keep going in your workout because it's, it's short term. It's not going to last yeah. in the long run. And it's almost yeah. fake. I hate to use that word, but it like almost yeah. is. It's like early fake results. Yes. Yes. And I always tell people, it's just, it's not sustainable. And I always say the litmus test is like, would you put your, your five-year-old on keto? You know, it's like, is it, is it for the long term um, going to be good for you? So I love, I love that you talked about, you know, the water and the carbohydrates because that is so key because people do see that and they're like, yeah, it works. But um, the, yeah, the once you start eating. Thing, 
The last thing I'll throw out there quickly is one of the other problems with the keto diet and not to go down this rabbit hole, but I got to throw it out there. If you have a really high fat diet, there's a chance you're adding a lot of saturated fats and you know, there's a lot of issues with high saturated fats. So you got to be really, really careful. No, almost no matter what diet you go on, you have to do your homework. You have to do your research. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is kind of the bottom line is know yeah. what's best for your situation. Exactly. So knowing what all that you know about um, nutrition and exercise and stuff, I would love to hear like, what's the typical day? What's your diet look like? So for me, I am, it depends on the phase, right? So like right. now we're going into the winter months or basically we're in the winter months. Um, so this is the time period where I try to pack on a little bit of weight. Mm -hmm. um, I do go through a quote unquote bulking phase around the winter. So I have added volume in my workouts. So I'm doing more of hypertrophy based kind of bodybuilding style workouts. Um, I've increased my protein intake to support that because I think one of the things that people need to realize is your nutrition and your training have to change at the same time. So whatever you, if your goals change from your exercise, then your goals have to change from the nutritional component too. If they don't mirror each other, then you're, I, you know, you're kind of spinning your wheels in the mud. You're not, you're not yeah. really making the progress that you could make. So since I'm in a hypertrophy phase, uh, I have increased my protein. I've increased my carbohydrate intake because I am looking to put on some weight. So part of that would be adding some, some carbohydrates. Um, but yeah, I'm not doing anything fancy. It's traditional workouts. I do traditional splits of, you know, I like the idea of, I typically pair upper body pushing exercises with lower body pulling and then vice versa. So I would do something like a bench press um, and like a RDL or some type of hamstring glute work. So I, I like that opposite um, kind of approach. So that's, that's where I'm at. And then I, I do like cardiovascular exercise. Uh, I shouldn't say that. I don't like it, but I it. like how I feel. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I like how I feel like when it's all said and done. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't do a ton of it because I yeah. do want to maintain muscle mass and I'm trying to do that. Uh, but I am trying to hit my always target is 150 minutes a week of cardio. So that's where my cardiovascular exercise is, you know, maybe three, four sessions of 30, 40 minutes of whack somewhere in, somewhere in that range. Um, is kind of what I'm looking for to see those benefits at this, at, as well. Yeah. Awesome. So I always ask folks, um, you know, because this podcast is kind of all about prioritizing your self-care. What is, so aside from nutrition and workouts, what's a non-negotiable for you and your self-care? So for me, a big non-negotiable is water intake. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you two because water intake kind of is nutrition, but water intake is something that I think not enough people really put enough stock in. Um, so I try to make sure that no matter what, whatever, you know, whatever my body weight is at the time, half of my body weight in ounces, that's like a bare minimum for me. And then if, if I work out, um, you know, obviously I try to get about a cup of water every 15 minutes. So okay. hydration and water, non-negotiable, but that, that spins off of actual nutrition. The other non-negotiable that I preach all the time is sleep. You mm. have to sleep because if we're going to talk about, and I know that's an easy answer, but it's, an, it's a really important one because mm -hmm. if we're going to talk about exercise and how you're going to stress your body, you have to talk about the opposite side, right? And you have to focus on the recovery piece. The number one recovery tool, forget about massage guns, 
Forget about <laughs> foam rollers. Forget about the fancy supplements that are out there. It's sleep. So I try to do my best to get that recommended seven to nine hours of sleep. But the duration is important, don't get me wrong, but the quality is also important. So to spin off that and to give a little bit more detail, what I've really focused on as a non-negotiable recently is just trying to like take some time before I go to bed and actually unwind. Like everybody talks about that and how important it is, but we are always stuck on our phone, you know, on our laptop, on our devices, we're answering emails. Like I've really tried to put that away read something like an actual black and white text. So I, I'm still in the day and age where I like printing out a research article <laughs> or just some professional development thing and yeah. reading the hard copy of it, you know, getting rid of that blue light and all that type of stuff that, that people want to talk about and just have an opportunity to let myself relax and kind of calm myself down before I go to sleep. So I increase that sleep quality. So to me, a non-negotiable is sleep for sure, because now we have so much good research that came out within the last few years on the impact of sleep and body composition. So we're seeing people who, you know, have lack of sleep that are losing so much more muscle mass and maintaining more fat mass, like in a diet phase, for example. Mm -hmm. So their body composition is completely thrown off because they're not sleeping well. Um, so that's a big factor. And obviously sleep and performance and mental health. And those are all, those yeah. are all big conversations too. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause I've always heard too, that, you know, the workouts are, you know, breaking down the muscle, but you really need the sleep and the recovery to kind of build it back up and, and get, um, you know, to reach those goals. So love that. I love sleep. Mm. Um, um, it's one of those things I'm still trying to figure out, you know, how to get that high quality. So I love the tips that you provide it. So I know you probably read a ton. You listen to a ton of books, podcasts, articles. So would love any of your top picks that you could share with folks. Yeah. So we're talking now we're getting into the, the whole misconception piece, right? And I've got a ton and I, I mean, we could sit here till tonight and talk <laughs> about all these things, but let me throw some of the big ones out there. So I've got a list in front of me. One of the first ones that I want to talk about, especially because I think your audience is predominantly female, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. So one of the things that I want females to understand as they get into fitness programs is lifting weights does not automatically make you bulky. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's females out there that say, well, I don't want to have that look to me. And I understand that, but you, you also have to understand to lift for strength and to lift for muscle growth are two different methods. Mm -hmm. So I am a proponent that everybody should lift weights, not necessarily lift weights, but have a form of resistance training. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to come in the form of iron, right? Like sometimes right. people see the barbell and they get intimidated and they say, that's, that's not for me. Well, there's bands, right? There's kettlebells, right. there's mm -hmm. medicine balls. There's, there's plenty of different ways that you can do resistance training for strength and muscle growth. So my biggest thing is I just don't want people to jump into a fitness program and think, oh my God, I'm going to start doing resistance training. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and look manly. Like sometimes people, sometimes I'll get females to say that. The first thing I say to them is, do you realize how slow muscle growth actually happens? That's number one. So like, for example, if you were lifting weights or resistance training, and you did notice that maybe you are a responder where you grow muscle faster than other females, 
well, then you can change your workout program so it doesn't create the same stimulus to keep growing. Maybe you just focus on strength. You know, you lift heavy weights um, for lower repetitions, and that focuses more on strength. If you're looking for muscle growth, typically it's a matter of, I don't know, typically it's somewhere between 30 to 85% of your all-out effort getting close to failure. So that's a lot different than the strength aspect of it. So that's right. my big thing. I just don't want people to think specifically females, but I get it on the male side too. Like I've, I've worked with males that are like, oh, I don't want to put on a lot of muscle. I want to, you know, these are, these are the other goals that I have. So it goes, right. on, it goes on both sides for sure. But I, that's my big thing. The rate of muscle growth is very slow. I mean, just look yeah. around a fitness center. Do you see anybody come in one week later and you're like, wow, they put on 10 pounds of muscle in that week. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. So that's and the I, big thing I want people to not worry about. I totally agree with you. And I, I could attest to that. It's so like, you know, trying to add muscle is so slow and hard. And most people get bulky because usually you're eating in a surplus and lifting. So you're actually gaining weight, whether it's muscle or not, is to, you know, is another question. But um, I think that's a great one because I get that as well. Like, I, you know, I don't want to lift. I'm like, as we get older, it's going to help prevent injury, help you with your mobility, all the things. So I love that. So I tell everybody, uh, one of my sayings is strength is the ultimate biomotor ability. And what I mean by that is strength correlates to an increase in almost everything. So if you get stronger, you're going to be able to be faster. So if you're an athlete, that's great. You're going to be faster. If you want to change direction and have better agility, that's, that's good. Being stronger allows you to be more powerful and your nervous system to adapt and, and react very quickly. So let's say you're just a general population person. You want to improve your quality of life. You do some strength training. I live in New England and it snows and all of a sudden you go to slip on a sheet of ice. Well, right. if you've been strength training and your nervous system is more powerful and has better reactivity, you have better balance, you have better stability. Strength training can improve your aerobic capacity and your ability to produce force against the ground to be a better runner or a better cyclist. I mean, strength right. literally benefits everything. And I think people need to realize that for sure. So what's another, if you had one more, I think we have time for one more. What's the top misconception or myth you want to bust? Ooh, man, this is going to be tough because I got a ton of them here. Let's talk a little bit about, since we've brought up protein multiple times throughout this uh, podcast, let's talk about high protein diets for a quick second, because I think there's a big misconception where people think that if I eat really high protein, that my kidneys could become damaged or my liver could become damaged because of too much protein. And I see this perpetuated a lot in the fitness space and it really shouldn't be. And I'm going to tell you why. So when you ingest high protein diets and I'll consider a high protein diet, right about what I talked about earlier, a basically a gram per pound of body weight. So right now I weigh about 180 pounds. So that would be 180 grams of protein per day for me distributed, you know, four or five, six meals throughout the course of the day. Perfect. Now there are people out there that say, well, time out that protein, when you have protein in your diet, essentially increases two blood markers. So bear with me a little bit listeners, but I think this is important (laughs) because if you go get a physical, like let's say, for example, you go to see your doctor, two Mm -hmm. blood markers that they're going to look at is something known as creatinine 
and something known as BUN or blood urea nitrogen. And both of those markers have the potential to increase a little bit if you're on a high protein diet. The reason why they increase, we're gonna, I'm gonna do each one separately, but the reason why creatinine could potentially increase is due to the potential aspect of breaking down amino acids. Mm -hmm. And because you have more amino acids, which are, that's what makes up protein, that could increase that number a little bit. Mm -hmm. Same thing with blood urea nitrogen, because protein or amino acids have something known as nitrogen in it. And that's toxic to your body. You have to get rid of it. Right. And the way you get rid of nitrogen is to build something known as urea. Your liver does that. And then it dumps into your bloodstream and your kidneys filter it out. Urea sounds like urine and you just, you pee it out and it's gone. And so that's a really important thing because a physician might look at your blood work and see these elevated markers of protein metabolism and think, uh-oh, that means that your kidneys aren't working functionally, or maybe your liver's not working functionally, which is not the case because once they realize, oh, you're on a high protein diet, oh, you lift weights, you exercise on a regular basis, okay, these are normal then. But if you don't tell your physician that, that's when it becomes a situation where red flags get raised. With all that being said, one of the key markers to kidney function is something known as GFR. It's glomerular filtration rate, GFR. And so when people are on a high protein diet, even though creatinine and this bun ratio go up, their GFR is perfectly normal. And that's the main signal that's basically saying, are my kidneys able to filter blood effectively? Because that's their job. So the bottom line is high protein diets are not harmful to your kidneys. They're not harmful to your liver, provided that you have a healthy liver and kidneys. Right. But they will potentially change some markers that a physician would look at. And if you don't know that as, the, as a person or you don't, you don't share that with your physician, that's where it starts to cause conversational problems where people think, uh-oh, there might be an issue, but I promise you there's not. And that's yes. a big misconception out there. I love that one. And to that point, so um, I obviously trained my mom and I have her on a moderately high protein diet, you know, eating whatever, 140 grams uh, a day. And she actually went to her doctor and it, her cholesterol was down, her BMI was down. So they were like, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. So, um, but I love that you, you know, kind of highlighted some of those key areas that might go up and the doctor might be like, what the hell's going on? Or you might be freaked out. So but she was tickled pink that the doctor was thrilled with her results. So uh, protein is where it's at, which I've, I've been saying forever. <laughs> Two more quick points about protein that I think are super important as we, as we wrap up here. Key points. Number one, when you ingest protein of all the macronutrients, so macronutrients means carbs, fats, protein. Of all the macronutrients, protein has the highest thermic effect. And that's a fancy way of saying you burn the most amount of calories from that protein. Um, when you ingest protein, you burn about 25%. Whereas, so if you were to ingest a carbohydrate source, it might be like, I don't know, six to 8% of the calories get burned in the process of digestion and absorption and fats like two or 3%, something like that. So when you ingest protein, 
25% of the calories that you ate in that protein source are already eliminated in digestion and absorption. That's a big number, right? Compared to carbs and fats. And then the next big factor is protein is very satiating. It actually sends signals to your brain when you eat protein saying that you're full. And so that helps you control calorie intake. And last but not least, the last thing I'll throw out there, which is super important as well, is protein goes far beyond just muscle growth. Protein super important for building neurotransmitters in your brain to communicate you know, with your nervous system. Protein's important for your immune system. Protein is the key component of enzymes, which break down carbs, fats, and, and, and other proteins. So in order for you to have a fast metabolism, you need protein to build those enzymes to do that. Red blood cells are made up of protein known as hemoglobin, which carries oxygen. Like we could go on and on and on. Wow. So protein goes so far beyond just muscle growth. And I think that's a big thing for people to realize in their health and fitness journey is because I get it all the time. People say, well, Chris, I don't want to have a bunch of protein because I don't want to build muscle. And then I say, well, time out. Do you want strong tendons? Do you want strong ligaments? Do you want a good <laughs> immune system? Do you want strong cardiovascular health, brain health, all those things? Well, then you better have high protein because yeah. that all goes hand in hand. Ah, oh, I love this. I could talk about this all day. It's like, yes. you're like singing my tune here. <laughs> but I, as we wrap up, I would love for you to share where people can connect with you, learn more about you. I know we connected on Instagram, but would love to share everything and I'll include it in the show notes. So it's super yes. easy. I appreciate that. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do that. So the easiest way to find me, um, I'm one of those people where I try not to, to diversify on a ton of platforms. I focus on Instagram. So if people want to reach out to me, Instagram's by far the best way. I, I think I have a Twitter. I dabbled in TikTok for a while, but that's the, you know, I've got yeah. it. You know, Instagram is the way and I, I'm, I'm more quick answering Instagram messages than I am text messages these days. It's amazing. Uh, but yeah, if you want to reach out to me, doctor.swart, so D-O-C-T-O-R dot swart, S-W-A-R-T. Um, I also work at American International College, which is in Springfield, Massachusetts. So you can go on the website, um, AIC, and you can, you can find my email, go into the exercise science page. You can explore what we do and, you know, kind of the programs that we have to offer. But yeah, Instagram for sure is the main way. Awesome. I want to thank you so, so much for coming on. I definitely want to bring you back because like I said, Please I could do. talk to you all day about this stuff. So thank you so much for, for being a guest and we'll chat soon. Yes. Thank you, Allison. I appreciate it for sure. Thank you. Thank you everybody for listening. Have you tried Built Bars yet? If you haven't, you are totally missing out. These incredible protein bars are macro-friendly. Some are gluten-free and nut-free, and they come in amazing flavors like coconut brownie, raspberry cheesecake, and my newest favorite, churro marshmallow. So check them out and use the code Allison Jackson Fitness, all one word, and save 10% today. Try it out and see how you like it and let me know. And again, it's www.builtbar.com and the code Allison Jackson Fitness to save 10%. Try it out today.